So Lisa, uh, Darren is away this week. <laughs> so you have to try and sound like Darren. Um, <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So um, this is the first time I've tried to do an intro to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast without him. So I'm feeling a bit lonesome. So, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, how is your Darren impersonation? Oh, you wouldn't know because you've never listened to the podcast. <laughs> it's true. I've never listened. So I have no idea what he sounds like. So uh, just uh, by way of explanation, um, Lisa is over visiting and her visit coincides with Darren being away. And uh, you did tell me um, that at least one member of your family is listening, even if it's not you. Two. My sister and her husband have been listening. In Arizona. In Arizona, in the U.S. And they love it. They say it sounds like they're hanging out with you. But my sister tells me she can't understand a single thing you're saying. That's... (laughs) Is that the same when we're actually in the same room? Or is it just when it's just when she's listening to the podcast? I think probably she doesn't understand you as well in the same room. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's right. I'll, I'll take the compliment, though. It's a, it's a nice compliment. So uh, today's episode, uh, we'll just get straight into it. Today's episode is an interview with banjo player Tony McTeague, who is a regular fixture around the Melbourne scene. He's an amazing banjo player. He is like a dynamo. Uh, when you go and see him in a session, he's um, got an incredible encyclopedic <laughs> brain for tunes. Like he's just one of those people. You see people uh, people come in who are traveling through the city to play, and they sit down with him, and they'll play something that maybe maybe he's heard once, and he just manages to catch hold of a strand of it, and away he goes. He's an incredible player. So that's today's guest, and. Just in Darren's absence, I will also do the the obligatory request that if you're not a subscriber like our friends in Arizona, <laughs> um, get over to patreon.com forward slash Blarney Pilgrims and hit the green button and become a patron. And for $2 an episode, you can feel like you're superior to the non-subscribers <laughs> who are listening. And um, that will help us keep this project going and will hopefully make it self-sustaining, which it isn't at the minute. So that's what we want to do. We want to expand it. We want to keep going because we're really loving what we're doing. And we think it's kind of worthwhile to record the people who are playing this music at the minute. Lisa is nodding. as she's... Yes, and you'll get to feel like Dom is in your living room with you. Yeah, which... Um, it could be a good thing, could, could, could be an incentive, could be a disincentive. Um, and with that, here is the amazing Tony McTeague, recorded at the last jar in Melbourne. That's not it. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. 
well, first of all, I mean, we should say, what, what, what were those tunes? Uh, well, the first one, I think, is called the Donegal Lass. And the second two I got from Enda Scahill's solo album. And I, I think the second one is called the Black Frog. And the third one is called the Sanctuary. So it's basically a, a set off an album with an extra one I stuck in front of it just because I liked the way it sounded. Right. Brilliant. So um, I guess um, there's a lot of things I, that I've kind of wanted to ask you since I started coming to the session here in the last jar and I saw you. And, uh, um, but uh, ba- banjo is also, Darren, Darren has a great passion for the banjo. So I guess ah, well, we play different beasts. Yeah, well, I do. I do tip around with the five string a little bit at home, but it's more like that that three finger, scrog style roll. I tried claw hammer once, and it just it makes no sense to me as a, as a tenor banjo player because it's all about this downwards only picking. Whereas the tenor banjo is the complete opposite. You have to get your up down stroke, otherwise you sound like you're driving nails. Everything is one dimensional, yeah. and um, and I love the sound of the claw hammer, but it uh, completely wrecks my head to try and play it. Like whereas a three finger sort of scrog style makes sense to me because you get up down up down you're that constant in your know, alternating you picking make, style i don't know if it's right to say but almost the claw hammer is a, almost a bit more percussion it is yeah yeah when does that make sense as so a non banjo player for a non banjo player so i'm thinking the scrug style is the style that people would associate with bluegrass right the yeah. Yeah. yeah the julian banjos from Aye. the deliverance right. sort okay. of sound that's um, the yeah and and what you what you play tony is a is a tenor yeah a four string irish tenor banjo yeah yeah so that's yeah, yeah and then I'm nowhere in I'm, where, where it's the same you? instrument but it's a, it's just played in a completely different way yeah. playing yeah. downwards only with the back uh-huh. of the fingernail never ever up right? yeah and it's always down so it's more like you're, you're in you're, you're tapping or punching out the rhythm yeah it's, it's, that's else. a good way to describe it like almost yeah tapping it punching it a little bit and um but for me, I'm like, why can't I just pick up when I'm doing this? And it's like because I have to move my hand back anyway, so I might as well use it to do something, which is how like a you know to play tenor. The most important thing is is your right hand picking. Like your, the left hand is actually relatively easy, and it comes just with practice. But if you get your right hand wrong, it's very hard to correct. And it's something that I had a lot of experience with, in that I actually had a very bad right hand technique for many many years. And I find I found eventually got to a certain like level of tune where I just could not play anything above that because I had a really bad right hand technique and it was actually of all people was Martin Holly from Wee Banjo 3 was the one who actually corrected it for me because um, I don't know if you've heard of Wee Banjo 3 have you? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, uh, Darren nodded and I shook my head. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like I mean, if you look them up like they've, they're a band from Galway that are like I mean I, I, I like to say I knew them before they were famous because they were around Galway so you'd seen them around and um, there's four two sets of brothers there's Fergal and Enda Scahill so Fergal plays the fiddle with them and Enda plays the banjo and then there's Martin and David Howley so David sings mostly and plays guitar and then Martin alternates between mandolin and banjo but it started off just at the three of them originally and they all played banjos and they've sort of branched out and if you they've, they tour America extensively every year in Europe like they've gone on to become probably one of the biggest bands to come out of Galway in this sort of, I suppose, the Irish slash bluegrass old time. So they play a lot of crossover stuff. That's what's interesting about them, all right? That, uh, yeah. After I thought you might know them, they don't just do, it's not just Irish tunes at all. No, no, I mean, especially if you look at their first album, like it's very much more Irish reels and jigs. And then it sort of advances to this very much a crossover style. But anyhow, getting back to what I was saying, um, <coughs> Martin Holly was actually an engineering student in NUI Galway, and I was a PhD student at the time. Um, so I was supposed to be teaching him how to design steel structures 
um, which the two of us ended up talking about banjos more often than not. Um, but anyhow, I was asking him how to play a particular tune one day that he, he knew how to play. Like he's, I mean, he's won seven All-Irelands or something ridiculous like that. So he's a really, really good banjo player and a really nice, really nice lad as well. And um, one day I asked him when I was supposed to be telling him how to design steel, I said, how would you play a certain tune? I had some tune I was trying to figure out. I could not get it. And he says, bring your banjo into college in the morning or tomorrow and we'll find some empty room and I'll, I'll show you. Just sit down with you for half an hour. And so I went in the following day, met him up, met up with him, and we went into one of the, um, the lecture halls in the engineering department of NUI Galway. And he just goes, play me a tune. So I played something anyway, and I thought I did all right. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, it, it sounds all right, but you realize you're picking most of your notes down. And I said, am I? And I said, because I, th I thought I was getting the up-down thing right, because someone had pointed out to me before that I had done it, and I thought I was doing okay. I thought I'd corrected it. And he goes, you're getting probably about once every four to get an upstroke, but everything else is down, and that's why you're struggling, like, to a certain, to push past where you're at, you know? And, um... And so he gave me, like, he sat me down for about half an hour and just showed me a couple of exercises. Just practice these now for the next six months. Don't do anything else. Don't learn any new tunes. Just work on this. And, um, and like, it was the point where I, I was, like, almost distraught because it's like, I mean, I've been doing, I've been playing 10 years at this point. I was like, Jesus, have I been doing this wrong the whole time? But anyhow, like, you know, I pushed past it. And after about six months, like, I started, I started kind of going back to learning tunes. And I was like, oh, yeah, that actually, that's actually much easier than what I was doing. So were you doubling? Were you yeah, I was picking everything down. So you get this very one-dimensional sound. And as far, apart from that, you can actually, the, one of the kind of scary things about it is you think you're doing okay because you can play fairly quickly, fairly good rhythm, but then you just get to a certain stage where you have to move your hand twice as often and you just start getting tired and then you can't, you can't get the speed past a certain point when you're doing it that way. And it's, apart from that, it makes your playing sound very one-dimensional. And so, like, it almost it almost broke me to relearn how to do it, but it it was worth in the end, you know. Yeah. So I had a similar thing happened with the claw hammer. I, yeah. I, and I knew from day one I had read, you need the right hand. Yeah. It's all in the right hand. The, the, the left is really is easy in yeah. comparison. And it was a little thing, and I I knew I was ignoring it. It's called like, well, it's drop thumb. Which drop is, thumb, yeah, yeah. And returning your finger to the fifth the whole time, and I yeah. I just let it slip because it was easy. Yeah. I could play tunes and I'm like doing it the other way was slowing me down so yeah. why would I need to I can just keep on playing and the same thing you hit that wall yeah and you have to unlearn yeah you have to unlearn you have to go back and so it was that 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 probably half an hour is probably one of the biggest things I had like in the last whatever number of years of playing just with someone who really knew his stuff and just pointed out three or four small little things there was a couple of other things he pointed out as well I can't even remember what they were he said just work on don't learn tunes don't do anything just take the tunes you have do these exercises and try to replay the tunes you already know using this sort of style. And I tell you, it worked wonders. I have a question for you yeah. that, that I get asked, and sometimes I take it as a, <laughs> as a bit of a bash, but I get this a lot. What, why banjo? What, what took you to banjo? Why banjo? Sometimes it's a different shaped question mark depending on who's asking. Okay. Why, uh, why the why long banjo? story short is my dad bought it for himself and it left in the hallway and I sort of got bored one day and said, let's have a go at this and see what we do. Because he, um, he'd talked for years about learning banjo um, because he was a big fan of Barney McKenna and the Dubliners and he'd always loved the banjo. And um, he talked for as long as I've known him about learning to play the banjo. And um, anyhow, he used to be, um, he was big involved in politics and he used to be on the Fianna Fáil National Executive. He was on it for many, many years. So he was always up and down in Dublin once a month or twice a month for meetings. 
And he was going by um, Walton's, I think, which was on St. Is it St. George Street or something like that in Dublin? It's kind of just one of those streets that's sort of parallel to the Grafton Street area, anyhow. And the shop only recently, I think within the last two years, closed down. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> anyhow, there was a banjo in the window and it was on sale. And he, he had just gotten paid or he just got an extra money. And he was like, right, I'm going to just go in. And I've been talking about this for years. I'm just going to go in and do it. And he went in and bought it anyway. Landed down home with it. And my mother nearly killed him. Like, cause <laughs> but, uh, anyhow, landed in with this banjo and... Um, I got up in the morning to go to school and I just saw it there. I was like, where did this come out of? Like, you know, what, what's this about? Yeah. And um, anyhow, he sort of got a few books as well when he bought it. Like, and so the two, he was sort of tipping away, trying to learn scales on it. And I sort of said, sure. I I'd kind of wanted to learn music for a long time, but we never had an instrument in the house. This just happened to be the first instrument that we got. And um, so I suppose I said, I shall have a go at this as well. Like the two of us will have a go at it. Like, and um I actually, I'm a lefty. I actually played it upside down for about two months because I didn't know. I just picked it up like that and said I didn't, I didn't know any different. And I was looking at the book and it had like, um, it had tunes written out in tablature and scales. And I kept playing it. And there was a tape with it as well. And I kept couldn't figure out why it didn't sound like <laughs> the tape. Like, like, at all. <laughs> and then it was my, uh, it was my dad who saw me playing it one day, and because the armrest was down at the bottom, and he goes, "I think you're holding it upside down." And he's a right-handed. And so I was like, show me how you hold it. Because for some reason, we'd never picked up that he was holding it one way and I was holding the other way. And um, so I was like, oh, yeah, that, that, would, that would explain all of that. So I had to start again after two. So that was like, yeah, the first time I had to start again from beginning. So I, I, I didn't know at the time. Of course, neither of us knew anything about it. Like, so I, said, I didn't know you could just swap the strings around. You could make it a left-handed one. Like, so. And the fact that he was still tipping away at it. I said, right, I'll just learn right-handed. And just get over, just just suck it up and get on with it, which was a you know pure fluke, but turned out probably the best thing I did because it just means that I play right-handed now, and so I can pick up anyone's banjo and I can play it like versus and even with a five-string, which of course as you know, if you were buying a five-string, you'd have to get it specially made left-handed versus they're all right-handed. So it was actually turned out to be in hindsight a brilliant thing. But uh, yeah, that's that's how the banjo came into the house originally. Was it was an impulse purchase because it was on sale for like two hundred pounds instead of two hundred and fifty or something like that. Like and and, and what what were you hearing then? Like so, if you've got a banjo, you, you you need to play something. So what were you playing like? Well, I guess um. Would you be hearing things in the radio or? I, I guess my dad might like. Uh, by the way, my dad still hasn't learned to play the banjo. Like <laughs> <laughs> he can still play the same four tunes. Uh, and, and like we, we have a sort of a thing in our household, we can hear him in the other room and there's one tune he plays called the Boys Blue Hill, which has a high B on it. And he can get okay up to the high B and we're all in the next room said, so wait for it, wait for it. And then you get this dud high B. He's like, there it is. <laughs> and it's, it's been like- It's a bit of a stretch. It is, yeah. But anyhow, um, so I guess he, but he's a big fan. He's a very good singer, my dad. Like, so he's very good. So he always had music in the house. Um, and he was a big, more so, not so much into Irish traditional music as much as like, ballads. So he was big into the Wolf Tones, is probably his favorite band. And um, the Bothy Band, I guess, would be his sort of tune slash ballad band he liked. Um, Dubliners, obviously. And I suppose the Pogues is probably his all time favorite band of a lot of them. So we always had these sort of, this sort of music in the house. Um, and was your was your mother interested in this as no, well? No, my, my mother's side of the family, I describe them as completely amusical. So my mother is American. Um, like her great aunt was a very, very, sorry, her aunt, my great aunt, was a very, very good piano player. But 
and um, her aunt and my granddad's side was a good singer. Outside of the two of them, the rest of the family are just, they would struggle to, like my mother's American, and I often say they would, if you got them all in the same room together at the same time, they would just about manage to remember the words to Star Spangled Banner, never mind be able to sing it with any respectability. So my dad's side of the family, my dad was an only child, so but all of his uncles played and his dad played. Um, he never actually played himself, but I say he took up singing was his big thing, and he sings in the choir, and he's very, he's been here in this pub like only about 18 months ago. And he was in the Corkman as well. So he's a very good singer. So most of the music comes from his side of the family, I guess. Right. Right. Where were you growing up then? Um, Just outside of Ennis in a place called Kilimona, County Clare. So it's like, uh, I suppose we're about four or five miles heading towards Ennis Diamond out of Ennis. Um, Yeah, there's lots of music in in our area. And of course, if you go into Ennis, it's like the mecca of Irish music. So, I mean, there's probably sessions there every night of the week you're not in three or four different places and you can get almost any kind of session you want in ennis on any given so you night. were hearing that as well not or? not so much it was more at home like with with the singing so i was trying to play songs a lot of the start like i mean so it's irish i suppose the tunes that I came later so i went to um a local guy a guy by the name of paddy command who's a very good banjo player and still a very good friend of mine so i still oh he's one of the guys i'll always make a point of visiting when I go home and play a few tunes with him, because he taught me a lot of like he again he knew he was a self-taught uh, banjo player, <clears throat> and I suppose I learned a lot from him at the very start. Like again, he was shown he was more singing, he was more ballads and playing songs on the banjo. So he kind of showed me a lot of that, and he showed me a lot of things about how to play chords on the banjo. And again, he he was self-taught, so he was trying to remember what he did. But a lot of it was just the two of us in his house. Like he's been a Tuesday night. Um, he would just sit down with me and we'd just basically hack for an hour and a half and if we got something that sounded halfway decent at the end of the night we were both happy you know um but you know i learned a lot from just just listening to him playing watching what he was doing and whatnot and then i suppose about a year or two into it there was um there used to be this great little i suppose you'd call it a class um that used to be run by a man by the name of frank custy who's actually the father of kathy who you just were talking to downstairs and he used to run this, um, he used to run during the school year in Tuna Hall. So on a Friday night, he used to organize three classes of one starting beginner, intermediate, advanced. And then at the end would be a proper session. And it literally was just a tune learning class. So it was great just for, it didn't teach anything about technique or anything. Like that. He'd show you a few basics. And at the very, very, if you were like a beginner, he'd show you like the scale and show you how to pick and show you a couple of very, very basic stuff. But really the aim of the class was just learning tunes. So he used to have a flip chart with tunes written out, just an ABC format. And you literally would just go through the chart, like you do one at a time, and you do it three or four times, and you'd slowly, you start off very, very, very slowly, gradually build up speed. And as you kind of stayed on to the later classes, like it became more like a session environment. So he'd, you know, he'd be a case where he'd, he'd play the tune, he'd flip over the charts and keep going. And, you know, you'd play it like you would play a set. And it was just fantastic like to actually learn so that's kind of where i started learning tunes is from that class i mean and people used to come from as far away like as neen and tipperary and back west clare and south galway used to come to this thing every friday night like you know i used to absolutely love going in there to that little class and i mean you just learn i mean a lot of the tunes i'd play now which i would i actually learned from there uh, it must have been busy then it was a bit like a busy class a lot of a oh lot yeah of i mean there'd be 30 people there like you know, there'd be kind of people drifting in and out as, you know, 
like some of the beginners wouldn't stay on like so they'd just yeah. be coming and going but yeah over the course of the night it'd be 30 people most of the time and it used to be a big open fire at the back so it used to be lovely like a lovely little place to play you know I was just like, what age are you during this I'm, time? I'd have been like in secondary school. I've been about 15 or 16. So I kind of started when I was about 14, 15. Yeah, so that would have been a fairly, like it would have been a social outing as well. Like you got to oh, class was, and yeah. you stay nice, yeah. tunes later. Yeah. Do you fancy playing a tune? Can you remember, like you said, you said that a lot of the tunes that you play now are from that time. Have you got one that you might uh, be top of mind? Th- could... I do. Um, let me think now what I would have learned from that now. Oh yeah, this would have been from it, I think. I think I would have actually learned some of these after the class because there was, but it used to it used to be a book that went with this class as well. So you have this, the same what you have in the flip chart written on the book. So this is one that um, I still play a lot, and the tunes, whether I learned them during the class or after, like kind of. It, I kind of moved on from it, but they were definitely out of the book from that class anyway. So the first one is called The Green Mountain. It's real. The second one is The Road to Rio, I think. And the last one is something.
Fantastic. Um, so one thing that has occurred to me, even just in the, the short bit of chat that we've already had, is um, so you, you talked earlier on about relearning and, and things, and you're talking there about learning tunes note by note from a flip chart, you know? Yeah. Um, there's work in there, right? So were you always just motivated? Like when you picked up the banjo, you just thought, I don't care how long this is going to take me. I'm going to sit here and do this for six hours. That's that's a good description. I used to get up like when I was doing my leaving cert. Like I used to get up at like six o'clock in the morning and play the banjo before I would go to school. You know, that was a thing I used to do um, because you'd be studying in the evening. So I figured if I don't do it in the morning, I won't get it done over the course of the day. So there was a lot of, yeah, 6 a.m. banjo playing in our house. Well, that was luckily, 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 <laughs> luckily, there's... um. I suppose we live in we live in the countryside, so we didn't have neighbours. And um, our the house I grew up in is a big long bungalow, so we went to one end of it. People at the other end of the bedrooms couldn't really hear you that much. So, but yeah, I was used to do that most mornings. Get up and play really early, and just practice what I had been working on, and then go to school for the day. And do do you know like are you able to put your finger on um, what was motivating you? Like why you were so. I just, I just, I guess, I remember when my, I was quite young, my dad had a, um, he actually organized, he used to organize, he organized a series of concerts for fundraisers for various things, and the Wolf Tones was one of the bands he used to get in relatively regularly, and I remember one time there was some reason, I don't think, they couldn't find a baby or something, so anyhow I ended up going to the Wolf Tones, and um, initially, reluctantly dreading it, I was like, oh God, I wish I was anywhere else, but within a couple of minutes of being there i was like i just got like absolutely taken away by you know it was just this wow i said i want to learn what i didn't really have banjo at that point but i said i want to learn some sort of music anyway and um i remember buying then not long after that like buying a cassette tape of the wolf tones and listening to it over and over again and um i guess then it sort of i eventually i think <coughs> I think just after I got the banjo, like, and after I started learning, my dad then got me a Jerry O'Connor CD. So Jerry O'Connor, I'm sure you've heard of, is a very well, probably the best banjo player that ever came out of Ireland. And um, he had a DVD as well that I actually used to have, like a tuition DVD, so I used to, well, video cassette at the time. Um, but uh, he had that, so I had that, but I had his CD, an album called Myriad, and um, it's just, I reckon to this day, it's one, still one of the best Irish music albums I've ever listened to. And if you just listen to the tunes on it, like it's just on again, it's unbelievable banjo playing. And I kind of said, I want to learn to sound like that. I'm still nowhere near it, but I'm still trying, if you know what I mean. And um, and I guess like Barney McKenna was always playing in the house. Well, my dad was a big fan of Barney McKenna, so he always was. Again, I had a load of Dubliners cassette tapes and things like that. So I used to listen to these over and over again. And, and so presumably a lot of that is songs, right? Yeah, a lot of it is songs. Aye. So. So, so you've got a. Do you have a fondness for songs too? Because I've seen you playing along with. I do, yeah. I like, like to play along with a song. Like it's a, it's a different kind of playing, I guess, because you're, you're trying to blend in rather than drive over the top of like. And I mean, I've been guilty of the the, the latter plenty of times when I was learning like. But I guess yeah, I do like to play along with a singer as well, you know, because it just you have to suit them like, and it mean it, it's a great way to be. I find it a great way to like to practice adapting what you're playing and the style you're playing because you have to go with the singer like they're number one when the song is on and you have to fit with them either you can't either fit with them or you shut up 
Or and and it's funny because as you're saying that, like I mean, I'm I'm thinking about that in terms of just your style, but also you'll know yourself. You know, singers can sometimes have a very elastic sense of tempo. Oh yeah. Or yeah. you think you're going to change, and and maybe there's a yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe it comes a little sooner than you're expecting, or a little after, and you and you have to it, sort of ride the the sort of current, right? So. Yeah, it's funny. Like um, I can most singers, I can figure out pretty quickly. The one big exception, in spite of the fact he's a good singer, is my dad. I cannot back him, and I've tried many times, but I cannot figure him out because he does exactly that. He, it sounds, so he sounds, he's best left alone because he sings quite well on his own, and he has his own way of doing it. And if you try to back him, it just instantly falls apart. Like, you know, you, you throw him off, and he throws you off, so you're better off just to stay out of it and leave him alone. And he's quite, he's very, very good on his own like that. But, um, I mean, I've backed some pretty average singers, but... Again, I can usually figure that, and usually if I got, if I find someone who's say wouldn't be the best singer, I can usually sort of get him where I need him and get him on track or her, whoever it is. But yeah, there's certain singers that I will just let them off because they're good enough on their own and they have their own way of doing it. And anything I do is only going to take from what they do. But so, that's a really that's a really um, delicate sort of oh yeah balance right and a delicate a, a real skill to have to know when to shut up and just yeah, not yeah, bother well, yeah. right because you always want to I, I mean you see you always there's always part of you wants to kind of get in there and there, there's times where you're just like no it's just leave it but alone on timing i was actually going to ask you about time because it, the times i've watched you you like you are an incredible metronome you can set your watch to you you just you're, you're driving is that something that you actively tried to learn when you're learning again it is that comes out of that that half an hour meeting with um with martin howley like he one of the things he told me is try practicing with a metronome because it's good just for the rhythm and the picking style because you sort of watch the metronome you know if it's one side you go down up and so i spent a lot of time yeah with a metronome about around that time about 10 years ago now and um i guess the the, the unintended consequence of that was i can usually keep timing pretty well in spite of what's going the one thing that i can't push through with someone stomping their foot out of time that's the one thing that will throw me every time you want to you want to you want to throw me off stomp your foot a little bit out of time you'll find i'll speed up because that's that's i don't know why but it's just it's a thing that i do i will speed up when someone's stomping that's how you'll know or, or if i can't hear myself particularly well yeah. so if i'm speeding you know one of those two things has gone on yeah uh, on on the so you get the metronome and um the picking yeah. Was the other thing. So, wh- what were the other things that you learned from that that half hour that that stay with that have stayed with you? I guess yeah. There's um. I guess those are the two big things. Aye. You know, like I mean, there was there was the minor things here and there. So just try. It was more like try this rather than you need to know this. You know, mm-hmm. it was like and 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 then uh, who are the other players? Are, so you're describing that Ennis was like the mecca. Yeah. Right. So. Like who are the other players who you're seeing around in those sessions? So when you're when you're not you know doing the learning yourself, but you're kind of out and about. Who's who's around? Uh, it's kind of it's kind of funny because music to me has always been a very private thing. It's something that I still to this day do more of it at home than I do outside. Because I mean, I okay, I played in bands in Ireland for a while, and I, I enjoyed it for a while. But I sort of I sort of got to the point where when I started working, that it just became too hard to do the two things, and I and I kind of found that I wasn't enjoying it anymore. So I sort of park that like, why, why were you not enjoying it because it's just it? with work going on and trying to do work and try to do it at the same time it was just really really hard you know i mean they were off traveling every weekend and it just it just became to the point where like i was dreading it and i didn't want i didn't want it to become a thing i dreaded 
And um, I mean, I naturally would be quite a shy person. So I would have been like, I probably would have played at home for 10 years before I ever played outside of home or that music class I used to go to or someone I really knew. Like I would never play in front of my parents even like for many years. And, um, and sessions is actually something I only started doing like the full on proper sessions like what we have here, you know, it's something I only started doing when I really was doing my PhD and on a regular basis. So, cause I had gone to college, I came out and I worked for like three or four years and I went back and did a PhD. And were um, you working as an engineer? An engineer. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I, when I was, um, when I was an undergraduate, I joined the Irish music society in the university and I went, I think to one or two of their sessions, just again, trying to get myself out and about into sessions. And I just found that they were, they were not welcoming at all. They were, had their own little thing going on and they were happy amongst themselves and anyone who was joining and trying to join in sort of wasn't wanted and was kind of, wasn't, I'm sure it wasn't intentional, but at least to someone like myself, who wasn't all that confident about their playing at the time, I just felt like, okay, I'm just going to forget this, you know? And I suppose I kind of came out and I worked then for a couple of years in a consulting company in Galway as an engineer. And in that three years, again, it was mostly just at home playing away. I was in a band at the time and I used to do that once a week, like not me only on a Saturday night for a finish because, again, I just couldn't do the everything. And um, then I went back and did a PhD um, and the first year that I, same thing, I didn't, I continued, but I hadn't really played sessions. In the second year, I was at the Society's Day and um, went up to the Irish music stand and there was a girl there who was signing people up, uh, a very good friend of mine to this day by the name of Siobhan McGinty. And she was just very welcoming, very friendly. And I kind of joined up. I, she talked me to join up. I said, right, I'll give it a go again. I mean, it's, you know, because college, one thing is they, they cycle over to like three or four years. There's a completely do, different crew in charge of things. So she convinced me to join up and come along to a session at the Crane Bar in Galway, which is, you know, very well known uh, traditional music pub in Galway. And it just so happens that that year, there was a lot of new people who had come in. A lot of the people from the previous year had moved on because they'd finished and graduated. And so there's a whole kind of new crew. And I just sort of met that crew that night and I've stayed friends with pretty much all of them ever since. And um, there was a banjo player by the name of Shane Devlin from Donegal, who again, I still very good friends with him. And he, he just had this fantastic style of playing. Like he sort of played a lot of chords and a lot of, so if, you were, if I was playing a tune, he wouldn't play the same thing I was playing. Because one of the things with banjos is they're very, very sharp and abrupt. And if you get two banjo players in the room, and they're not, and unless they're playing exactly the same thing, it starts to sound very bad very quickly. Um, so the way around it is to come play completely different things or variations of the same thing on purpose. And it actually works really well. And he used to have this great style of almost half bluegrass, half trad and um, a lot of chords and a lot of variations on things and and just listening to him play like i was like i want to know what you know and how you do that because it just sound used to sound fantastic and so i kind of played the whole like the first session i went to with this crowd like i was hooked straight away i said i want to come here every week now and i and i kept that up then for the remaining three years i was there doing my phd and i mean the whenever i go we go home at, i have to go home at christmas now I'm always trying to round up as many of them as I can to, to go back to the crane where we used to play and um, and get them all together again as much as of them we can. And when I was at the Ennis Fla, it was probably the last time we had pretty much everyone from that session together. 
and we just sort of took over a pub in Ennis during the Ennis Flam. and we stayed there all day and we just had the, the best day of fun. Do you, uh, do, you miss, do you miss Ireland? Oh yeah, I mean, I, like, there's very few days I don't think about going back. You know, and I mean, I've been here, I came here in 2012 and it was out of like during the whole global financial crisis of which Ireland bore a very significant brunt of it. So I had just finished up my PhD. I had applied for a permanent job at lecturing at the university and I didn't get it. Like, and that was pretty much the only job prospect that there was for an engineer. Like, I mean, construction was just non-existent at that point. So it was a choice, I guess, of, of go to America because my mother being American, I have full American citizenship already. And, um, and I kind of steered away from America just on the basis, the way that the kind of the work ethic there is, is, you know, they work you to the bone. You only get like 10 days of leave a year. So I kind of said, I kind of figured that when I looked at Australia, it just, a lot of people, of course, were coming to Australia from Ireland at that point. And I guess I knew a few people who were here and they seemed to, they seemed to like it anyway. And I said, uh, sure, I'll give this a go anyway and see if I don't like it, I come back. I mean, but I kind of figured that like, at least when I go there, you get normally 20 days leave. So even though it's further to come home, at least you can come home for a decent stint rather than you're there and you're back again. So I sort of came here. I actually skipped my PhD graduation to come here. I was literally getting my name called out as the plane was landing in Melbourne. Um, that was literally the exact time that they were calling me out. <coughs> so I came here in 2012 and I, I knew a few people who were kind of passing through. They weren't here permanently. So I sort of, I sort of they sort of minded me for a day or two uh, for a few days until I kind of got just, you know, I was kind of a fairly nomadic existence for the first year. But um, actually, funny, like, funny story, a friend of this girl, Siobhan McGinty, was telling me about who was in the Irish Music Society, a friend of hers who is still here, she put me in contact with her, said she knows where all the sessions in Melbourne are. So I met her, I think I got here on a Friday night. It was Cathay Pacific flight CX163, so I remember it. Because that's the flight I always come back. I always use the same flight numbers when I go back and forth because I know they work. Right. But um, <laughs> literally, um, she, uh, I think I met her. She told me anyway, I got, I, got, I got her phone number anyway, and she told me about the sessions, and she told me about the Corkman, which is the last jar session now, but it's the one that's run by Paddy Fitzgerald. So I had just come here, and um, she told me, she, she met me, I think she met me at the Drunken Pot, actually. She wanted to show me where the Drunken Pot was. She told me, meet her there. She said, there's a Drunken Pot, so we're going to go to the Corkman, which, as you know, isn't too far away. And I didn't even have an instrument with me. I had it with me, but I didn't bring it that night because I said, I'll just go and see what the, what the story is here. And went into the Corkman anyway, down to the back room where the sessions used to be. And there was this massive big session going on. And, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is, this is just like home. And... Um, <clears throat> She managed to get there. Paddy came in. Paddy Fitzgerald is, I'm sure everyone, everyone in Melbourne knows who Paddy Fitzgerald is, and I'm sure half of Ireland does as well. He came in anyway, and she knew Paddy loosely through the GAA connections, I think, because Paddy's a big um, gay man as well, so he helps out with the Sinn Féin club here. And um, he was walking in past me, and she dragged him aside and said, I'll meet this man here. He's from County Clare. Like. And, of course, Paddy, like, you know, Paddy, like, he's just... For a man who's been here 60 years, you swear to God, he just came off the boat yesterday. Like, he has all the same mannerisms, all the same accents. There's no, it's like, and then anyhow, I remember just 
chatting to Paddy for five or ten minutes, like, and it just felt like home straight away. Like I said, I this is this is a man you need. I need to get to know, you know. And um, he, he goes, uh, "Have you an instrument with you?" I said, "No, no, I don't." And I said, "Oh," and he was like giving out to me, saying, "Oh, Jesus, you should have brought it." And like he said, "You join in, come in." And um, as it happened that night, Jeff MacArthur was from Ballarat was there because I think it was school holidays, so he was there. And he happened to have his banjo with him. Like he was only sort of tipping. He was playing the guitar, but he had his banjo with him. And, and he said, give, give him a loan of that. Like, is you mind? Like, so he gave me this banjo anyway. And I sort of sat at the back and I sort of quietly did my thing. Because I hadn't played and I had a big long gap in playing at that point. And um, he sort of just said, join in, do what you can. Like, and, uh, and of course, Paddy being Paddy, like whenever there's a new person comes to the session, he makes a big deal of them. Like, and then at one point in the night, he, he stands up and he goes, there's a new man here from County Clare. <laughs> he, and I was like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and he stood up and he goes, there's a new man here from County Clare. He's, uh, he's from Kilnamona and there he is. He's playing the banjo. And will he play a tune for us? And I was like, oh, God. And um, anyhow, so I was like, God, what am I going to play here? Like, and. They, apart from that, like the tunes that had been played up to that point, and I, I didn't know a lot of them because they were completely different to the tunes I used to play at home. So I was scratching around and said, what will I play here now that they'll know, because like, I won't be here by myself, you know. And um, anyhow, I played something that I thought that everyone knew. Of course, no one knew it, like, and I was there. <laughs> There's a tune called The, uh, the Moving Cloud, which is a Jerry O'Connor, one of Jerry O'Connor's kind of signature tunes. And um, he, I played it, and then I was looking around, and I was like, God, I need to get out of this anyway. And then I played another tune I used to play in Galway all the time, a tune called The Boys of Malin, like, which, again, no one seemed to know. One person knew that, actually. And um, and I think I called it a halt. I, I, cut, I cut my losses at that point. Like, and, um, but anyhow, they, there was, there was um, the other people I met that night who I still know, like would have been Mark Wilson, who you had last week, and um, John Blaney. Um, Jeff MacArthur, um, and then I, I you had who has Peter Blinkeron, um, a couple of others. Noel Hanway, like who's a very good banjo player, flute player, guitar player, sings as well. You see him here on Wednesday still. Um, and then a and a and a, uh, a woman by the name of Nikki Kramer, who was a fantastic fiddle player, which we don't see around that often. But anyhow, they must have thought I did all right. Because I came back the following week and they instantly, I was I was making for the back row and they're like, no, no, come up here. <laughs> Sit down with us. Like, and I was like, Jesus, what am I doing up here now? <laughs> but um, yeah, that's how I suppose I got to know a lot of the people I still know around here. That's, that's a very interesting story on a couple of levels. So you're describing there about sort of sneaking in the back and stuff. Yeah. Like I've done that here like and still do it's going yeah. to sneak in the back but i had the very same experience Patty. with patty who was yeah. like being very welcoming turned around and says there's a fellow here from Antrim. he's a great whistle <laughs> player he's a great whistle yeah. player uh, yeah. it was me and, and, and then i played i was like where's where this guy <laughs> there's two of us in from Antrim. <laughs> yeah yeah that's and, patty uh, that's, the, that's the way he is do you want to actually um you mentioned the one that the first tune you played and it's not a very well known one. I forget who you said. Uh, well, no, it's kind of well known now, but at the time there wasn't that many. I think there might have been one person that knew it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's one of my favorite tunes called "The Moving Cloud." It's um, we used to play it all all the time back in Galway. We came up like um, I suppose I played probably more sessions in Galway than I did around Ennis, even though I'm actually from near Ennis. But I didn't. I says I didn't really play sessions regularly until I was doing my my PhD years yeah. before I really became a weekly thing for me. Do you fancy giving us a... Give it a, a go. Dust. 
it's, it's one of these ones that it's kind of best jumped into from a whole pile of things when things are going well because it, is, it isn't the easiest tune in the world. But I'll see if I can get through it. about it was the banjo I had been given a loan of that night it was a 17 fret tenor instead of a 19 fret so it always confuses me because I always end up there's a lot of high notes in it so I kept ending up too far up the thing when I was playing it so I should say just as well it's probably obvious to people but um, the the Corkman uh, was a pub in Melbourne that's no longer here yes um, that was uh, demolished and um, and the Drunken Poet is also a pub which still exists where there's a session yep. so I just so people know what we're talking about yeah, there, the Corkman kind of course was the one that was illegally demolished uh. aye yeah aye. It was a, so. but that was a fantastic session I also got to that session every now, now and again not, not a lot but yeah. any time you go in there it was just driving oh yeah it was heaving because it was it had this great setup. Way the way it was at the back is the, the session used to be kind of set down in this sort of set down area so there was like a, almost like an amphitheatre around it so it sort of was cut off from the pub noise, and so you, you could just always hear nicely in there. And I used to, yeah, I used to rock until like one o'clock in the morning. Yeah, it was a bit, a bit three steps, two steps down, yeah. and it was all the way around. And you'd have you guys, yeah. the, the main players, all in the middle, and then us mere mortals yeah. could <laughs> gather on the on yeah, the steps it, it around was, the edge. Great, and yeah. even behind that, then again, there was a bit of a um, like a gantry where the bathrooms were. And yeah, stuff there and was. It was like there was like these sort of balustrades along two sides of it, so it just sort of kept the sound in and kept the noise out and then yeah. people who wanted to see then actually had a really good view of what was going on like yeah. you know, it was a great place for a session mm -hmm. i just want to ask you about your banjo it's a yeah. brilliant looking machine and obviously you can hear it's a yeah. it's a it's a monster what is it that what is a uh, a clarion elite so that was made by tom cusson of the shaskeen Kelly band who um who makes these out of claren bridge in county galway so i've had that since it was new so i bought i think it's 2002 i got that so i've had it the entire time it's um it's the 25th one of those ever made 
So it was back in the day, like clarine banjos, I guess when I was starting off, the banjo was a semi-obscure instrument in Ireland. Like there wasn't that many of them around. They were there, but compared to now where like the likes of, yeah, like we Banjo 3 and these well-known banjo kind of players and things, it's like the in vogue instrument nowadays. So you, you see an awful lot more of them than what I used to. But um, back in the day, like, I got that. So I think Endoscal has like the 15th one made and Martin Holly is the 23rd one. So it's of the the very early ones of that. And apparently these ones have actually become quite sought after amongst um, like the top players now because it was back in the day when Tom used to make the whole thing himself. I believe nowadays he buys in some of the parts um, just because I guess back in those days there was very few new made instruments. So you had your, your 200 euro import you know beginners ones and then from there on most people would buy like a vintage american jazz one from the 1920s and then sort of restring it and set it up for irish music so there was two guys making them tom cusson of clarine banjos being one and the other guy being dave boyle and they both made the banjos they made are pretty much identical like so they're very very similar the way they're made uh, i think they're mostly based upon someone of the gibson banjos from the 1950s but i couldn't be sure of that but yeah the thing with them is they're designed i guess with acoustic playing and a noisy pub in mind which is why they punch so loudly so they have the arch top tone ring on them is that um, what it is okay. that's what that's called an arch top so that's what so that that's, little bevel is around the edge that's on the front uh, yeah. on the front where the where the uh, yeah. where the strings are and the, and the drum and the bridge yeah. yeah so that gives it a bit of bit of that's that punch um, versus a lot of the American-made ones from the 1920s are flat tops or, or tuba phones, which have a mellower sound, but you bring it, and they sound great, but you bring them into a noisy pub and they just disappear in amongst the background noise, whereas these ones are kind of built with that session kind of atmosphere yeah. in mind. I mean, when you said, you mentioned just then, a lot of people would get the old, like an old American, yeah. more of jazz, and then they would set it up to be more of an Irish. Yeah. What, what changes were they making? Uh, mostly just the strings. Um, so the jazz setting is is an open. It's an it's it's I can't remember what it is it's called. Standard tenor tuning. I, I think Tony O'Rourke, when you were here, I think he talked about it uh, as well. Um, in fact, funny enough, Jerry O'Connor actually plays. He's one of the few that plays in that tuning. It's right. C D B something. I can't remember what it is. Um, with the Irish tenor banjo is basically set up like the fiddle. So it's G D A E. Only it's set an octave lower. So pretty much to take a jazz-style banjo, make it an Irish band, you just change the strings. That's yeah. pretty much. From your recollection, what would you say is the root of the banjo into Irish music then? Like when did it change from that tuning to then be a fiddle tuning? Is there someone that, I think that drove it? Barney McKenna is attributed one way or another as being the person that innovated that way. And I guess um, I guess it sort of makes logical sense because I guess the, the mandolin, which would be used more and more in Irish music, is also set to that tune. And I mean, being a stringed instrument, you can set it up any way you want, really. Um, and I guess just that tuning, it just sort of suits the keys that Irish tunes are played in. It gives you a full, almost two octaves of most keys without very much hand movement. So it's, it's a very practical set up and funnily enough i actually i actually don't use 100 percent the natural tuning i use a d a e i use a bottom a instead of a bottom g 
which is another thing from that half hour meeting from Martin Holly was he showed me this trick of playing a certain tune with a bottom A. I was looking at your fingers, think like that your thumb yeah. is over. I was wondering why you were doing that. Okay. And um, I kind of learned how to use. I just sort of, sort of found that it works very well for a lot of extra chords because it makes things a little bit easier to get chords in. And I have also kind of learned over the years that the key of A sounds very good on the banjo. It really suits it. So I play a lot of things in A that most people, much the um, wrath of accordion players and pipe <laughs> players and yeah. flute players. But I just, it's a thing I, I, I do it in sessions a little bit, but it's mostly a thing I do at home, like again, because it's kind of just a bit obnoxious to, to play a standard tune that everyone knows in a different key. Um, but it's just it's just a bit of fun, and I just find that it works really well for a lot of the things I play. So I just sort of leave it an open bottom A instead of bottom G, pretty much the whole time. Yeah. Um, so it's a slight yeah, it's a slight quirk of. I mean, there's a few people I think that do it kind of intermittently for tunes. They tune it up to A or tune it back down to G intermittently. Uh, incidentally, Tom Cusson, who made that banjo, he, he gives out to me for doing that because he says it's lazy. Like, it's like, yeah. well, it's, it means I can play tunes I wouldn't otherwise play, so I don't care. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but, so if you, to, for anyone, if you're looking, that Tony has his your thumb over the coming across the top of the neck and it's holding it's holding the yeah, top you string. Yeah, you, you can get an E minor fret. chord by doing that, you know. So a lot of E minor tunes you'll see me doing that. Um, because it just you know it's just a another trick I guess you can have like yeah. it means you can use your thumb for mm -hmm. certain things anyway. One of the, one of the very uh, noticeable things for me about uh, your about your playing um, is how you sort of uh, when you get up ahead of steam, you yeah. you you start to um, play a lot. Um, you play chords or half chords as yeah. well in in amongst the melody, and I totally yeah, <laughs> totally love it. It is so great, and um, it's interesting that you talk about the banjo not, you know, not always being that fashionable. And because I remember somebody who used to play in our local cultist who played the banjo, and he was the only person who played banjo around that I'd ever seen. But it was very, very narrow melody based, you know, and it had none of the kind of movement or the excitement or the, you know, I mean, you've got a lot of, um, there's a lot going on there. I mean, are you, you're doing a lot by feel there yeah, at times? Yeah, a like, lot of it is just suck it and see. Like, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It'll rarely get played twice the same way. Um, and I guess I get a lot of that, I guess, from, from this guy, Shane Devlin, who I like, because that's why he used to do a lot of that chord stuff. Now, I only really know about four chords on the banjo. Like, I mean, I've never really, they've never made sense to me in a way that I would like them to. Um, but a lot of it is, yes, yeah, half chords. And a lot of it is just like, well, this is in D. So I find a note that is D and you can sort of, almost like the, the, the three finger style on the, the five string, where you just find a note that resonates with what you're playing and you just keep hitting it like in the process. And if you can do it without compromising the melody of the tune, you can do it. And I mean, I guess the other thing I like to do is when is when someone else is leading the tune. I try again. I try to pull back a little bit on it, which I guess is one of the things I like about these the the, the clarine banjos because they have that volume. Is you don't actually have to play them that hard. Like you know, they sort of do a lot of the hard work for you, which means that when you want to pull it back, you can pull it right back as well. And so just changing the hand position slightly, easing off a little bit, and um, like I guess I do it a lot when someone else is leading the tune, particularly if it's a tune I've heard you know a million times over, and you're kind of a little bit sick of it. But I find that just doing some of these chord things, you can keep it interesting for yourself, and you're sort of like, well, let's try this and see how it sounds, you know. 
Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it's just about, it keeps the tune fresh in my own head. So I'm still learning things from tunes I've known for 20 years, you know, which... That's, that's really interesting. So, uh, I mean, if you, can, if you can say what it is, I mean, it's probably not something that's easy to put into words, but how does that happen that there's a tune like that you've played so many times that you still feel like you're learning something from it? Well, it's just, it's just doing that. Like, it's just like, okay, this is, this is, you know, this is a tune like, like you know, Silver Spear, Father Kelly, those very common session tunes. And it's just about like, can I, what can I do to this and get away with it without people complaining that I'm playing it wrong, you know? Like, it's just about... <laughs> <laughs> it's so simple, <laughs> but it really probably so is. You did put it perfectly into words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah. let's just see how far I can go with this. Like, and, and before someone starts complaining, like, and I, I very rarely have people complain I said, you're playing that very different. Like, it's like, well, I'm kind of doing it just to keep it interesting for myself. And um, I guess as I do it more when, when if I'm leading a tune, I tend, to, I tend to pull it back. I tend to play it more straight down the line, unless it's something that absolutely no one knows, in which case I said, right, I'm going to do what I want. But if it's something fairly common, I try to keep it bang on as close as I can because I find it'll confuse people if you start going off on tangents here and there. But um, yeah, if it's someone else, like if Paddy's leading the tune, like I'll kind of almost pull back and and sort of just say, right, let's throw in a few chords. Let's play it straight the first time just to refresh it. And then let's try something different the next time through and let's try it a different way again. So so once you got into the, the Corkman session, and um, did, you, did you find it quite easy to just get into the stream of playing again? Yeah, so, I did, yeah. I mean, yeah. the Corkman session was, it's just, and it still, still is fantastic. And I suppose I used to go to the um, the Quiet Man on a Sunday as well with Joe Fitzgerald. So I think I was there the following Sunday. I met Joe Fitzgerald. And the Quiet Man was a bit harder work to play in because it's. I, it was, I mean, I used to enjoy it, but you know, it's just a noisier pub. Like whereas the Corkman, I mean, I say most of the people I know will be my good friends over here. I knew them from the Corkman session. That's where I first met them. And then obviously, then people have come and gone since. But the core group of about eight or ten are still here they still come here every wednesday and i still know them and they're still probably the, the people i i kind of lean on the most when i'm here mm-hmm. sure we're coming near the end of the mm-hmm. time we've got so do you reckon could we have another tune or set of tunes yeah player's choice <laughs> i could i'll do this set this is a set i learned recently enough from a kevin griffin album and it's a set of barn dances that i suppose bluegrass would be my second kind of music that i do listen to a lot and i guess one of the things i i suppose a lot of a lot of kind of what I'd play like would be almost sort of five string Scrog style, trying to replicate that sound a little bit on the tenor banjo. Um, and there was this set of barn dances that Kevin Griffin had on one of his live albums, and it's just a fantastic sort of like almost crossover old time Irish. And they're actually one of them is actually even a Scottish pipe tune that he plays on the banjo. And um, I'll just play them because they're in A, which is I say is my favorite key. I could not tell you what they're called, um, but there. I just want to say thank you so much. I know we've been trying to tee this up for so long, but thank you so much for taking time. No worries. Here, really, and particularly again when there's a session happening downstairs, it's lovely. Oh, yeah, well, I can hear. I can hear them. I might sneak in. Although I have to. I'm on public transport tonight because the starting motor in my car is a bit questionable at the moment. Oh, no. I'm trying to minimize the amount of starts I have because the tea was coming and it just won't start anymore. <laughs> well, thank you so much for giving us your time, man. Okay.
I, I have one thing before we go. I just had, a, had something else I wanted to ask you before we, before we wrap up. What did you do your PhD in? Um, engineering as well. Uh, so. I, like a specific? Um, it was something to do with engineered wood products. It's uh, right. Most uh, engineering PhDs are, for the most part, useless. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was one of those things that I didn't. I don't regret doing it. Like it was, you know, you learn. A lot. It's more the skills you learn by doing it than the actual topic of what you do. I right. mean, basically, engineering and construction are probably the most conservative profession that you're ever going to get. I mean, we've been using steel, concrete, timber, and brick to build things for thousands of years at this point, and it's no sign of changing anytime soon. Um, but yeah, it's, it was something I enjoy doing. I don't regret doing it. So, so, so having a, a, an engineering sort of turn of mind, and you, you talked about your flight numbers and things, and yeah. uh, you, you know, you're clearly very sort of numerically oriented. Would that be fair to say? Uh, that would be very, uh, very accurate description. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm interested about how that intersects with your musical kind of sensibility, right? Because. Do you, do you see them as a sort of natural complement for I, one I another? I sort of or? see music as, as, as not doing any of that stuff because that is so regimented and everything is like based on whatever research and whatever theories of physics. And it's, um, I guess music is the sort of the breakout from that. I mean, I guess the nights I enjoy the session the most are the nights, the days I've had a shit day at work before it because I just sort of come in and just sort of vent it by playing tunes and it just sort of goes away you know it's almost i'm sure there's um my cousin's a mathematician and she always talks about the link between music and and maths and it is very actually mathematical because again my brother who's um he's a computer programmer and he plays the guitar and sings and he's very intelligent like and he sort of worked out the guitar without ever getting lessons by using maths so he's like so this should be that chord because that's what the free and he had it all worked out. Like, how the hell did you figure that out? <laughs> <laughs> but um, for me, it's almost like a break from that. Like, cause uh-huh. it's, you know, I mean, most of what I do nowadays is demolition work, which is, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of intense. It's intense work because you're dealing free with a lot of uncertainty compared to doing something that's a new build. You're dealing old buildings, old equipment, You've been asked to do things that the building was never supposed to do, and here you are trying to take it apart. And so it's very intense. It's very numbers based, and you have to then defend what you've done to someone who's checking your thing. Like, so you might have another engineer who's saying, "How did you do this?" And you're you're there, defending what you've done and saying, "I'm no, trust me, I actually do. And I know I know it doesn't look like it, but I know what I'm doing." <clears throat> but then you come into music, and it sort of is a complete separation from all that, which is the way I like to keep it. Mm-hmm. Do, do you do you feel that it um, like you talked about being shy when you started? Like, do you still feel like a sense of shyness at all? Or? Oh, I do. Yeah, I mean, I will not get up on stage and play music. I still won't. I oh, mean, really? I will. I mean, less under. There's a very good friend of mine by the name of Anya Terrell who will okay, who will do, but the only person who will talk me into getting up on a stage and playing a tune, like, and she's about the only person that does it. So she. Sometimes it you know, does gigs in Victoria, like, and she always gets me up to play a tune, like, and she's about the only one who can do it. No one else can. Um, and I, which is odd, because I did play, I played in bands for quite a number of years, but I never, again, it was mostly singing. It wasn't playing tunes. It's something that... Um, do, you, that do you sing? No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's song. No. It's past tense. 
No, no, never did. Um, not from lack of wanting to, but just lack of finding the the courage to try it. You know, but um, I have two people at the moment who are working. They've vowed that they're going to get me to sing a song. Um, they haven't succeeded yet, but they're still giving it a go. You know, um, but yeah, it's. I mean, apart from just yeah, I don't. I'm not comfortable. With it. I, I'm you know getting up on a stage and performing. Um, and apart from that, is sort of like it becomes like work. Then I find, and again, like as I say, like music is my thing. That's not work. So the last thing I want to do is make it like a work. So I mean, every now and then I kind of get notions that oh yeah, I wouldn't mind giving bands a go again. And then I start thinking, well, that means you have to go find gigs, and that means you have to go talk about money, and that means you have to talk about rehearsing, and it becomes like this big chore. And as soon as I start thinking of the things that you have to do to make a band, I was like, oh, forget it. It's too hard. It's like just keep going to the sessions and doing my thing that I'm doing now. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for taking the time. You're welcome. Thank you. It's been brilliant. Tony McTeague, uh, pretty wild. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, so one thing that happened when he played that first set of tunes, uh, me and Darren, like, were just sitting for literally about 10 seconds, like, we didn't know what to say. It was blistering is the word <laughs> it's incredible um he's an incredible player so thanks again to tony thanks to everybody at the last jar in melbourne and thank you for listening and we'll see you next week when hopefully darren will be back here with me and thanks lisa phillips thank you hi my name is Jack, so please become a good subscriber to the podcast Thank you.